So thankful for our student ministry that continues to lead by example. That's one that has fun and plays games, but is centered on, the God, on God's word because that's what's going to get us through the trials of life. And so I'm thankful for Caleb and his leadership and for a student ministry that is grounded on God's word. And I've seen 17 that have been baptized over the last 18 months or so. Aren't you, aren't you thankful for our student ministry? This morning, we continue our journey through what it was like on that very first Christmas. We go back and see what was it like in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. I've said, let's go behind the scenes. Let's peel back maybe what we have visualized it, maybe as we've seen it portrayed on stages, um, on churches across America or movies. And what was it really like in Bethlehem when Jesus was born? If you were here with us last Sunday, we looked at four separate characters and we saw that Joseph, that more than likely he was filled with some fear, fear of what was going on at the time, what people might say, but also fear of the realization of, oh my word, now I'm in charge of raising the savior of the world. When we looked at Mary, we said she must have just been overwhelmed, not only with all the events that were happening in that day, but also overwhelmed with understanding that she was chosen by God to carry in her womb for nine months and to raise the Messiah, the innkeeper. Out of all the words we use, we said that he was occupied. He didn't have any room for Jesus in the inn. Then we looked at the shepherds and how they were truly amazed at all that was going on. And they, they said that they could not keep what they had just seen, that they, had take, they took the message to the streets and they were sharing with everyone that they had just seen the promised one, the Messiah who had been born. And of course, our goal as Christians, for those of us here today that have trusted Christ as our Savior, our goal is that our response to the presence of Jesus would be that we would act just like the shepherds. They would be filled with amazement and wonder and that we couldn't keep what Jesus has done, not only in history, but what he's done in our lives. We couldn't keep it to ourselves, but we would want to share his message with everyone that we come in contact with. But if I'm being honest here this morning and just complete transparency, I would have to say that even as a pastor, that many times I act more like the innkeeper than I do the shepherds. Many times I find myself occupied, filled with so many other things that I'll make room for Jesus, but maybe he comes in second, third, or even fourth place. Sometimes I find myself so busy doing things for God that I don't do what's most important, and that is to slow down, to stop, and simply worship at his feet. I don't know about you, but I tend to relate many times more to Martha than to Mary, if you know what I mean. But before we jump into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you may want to go ahead and turn there. I thought, especially since we have some kids in, in the room with us today with our fours and fives that we welcome. So if you feel something grabbing your foot, it's not a monster. It's probably um, my son or somebody else who's grabbing your foot crawling under the pews. And that's fine because we love having our kids in worship today. Um, but before we jump into looking at Matthew chapter two, and we're going to look at two additional characters today as we wrap up this quick series. I wanted to show you my favorite retelling of the Christmas story, particularly as it's told by children. Now, some of you have seen this before. I used this on a Christmas Eve service, I believe three years ago, but it's worth watching again. So watch through the eyes of children how the retelling of Luke chapter two. Let's watch this together. An angel came to see me. Mary, she was doing laundry 
disappeared and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, Mary, you're gonna have, what? I can't, I can't say good. Mary, you're gonna have a baby. I, you're gonna have a baby and you will call him Jesus. And then Mary was like, I'm not gonna have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager, I'm not married. Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She, you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. <laughs> oh, no. A camel. Oh yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. They tried to go to a hotel and they asked the keeper um, for a place to stay. The keeper said, we have no rooms, literally no rooms. So Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, the only place in here in Bethlehem that, that you can stay, stay is a staple. And then he just pointed the way and they followed. When the shepherds were taking care of the sheep, then they saw angels. The angels said, a new baby is getting born, who is king of the Jews. The angel were singing. Glorious. And then the shepherds said, I think we should go there and meet him. The second, I think, said, yeah, I agree with you. And the other said, yeah, me too. They had to walk through a bunch of grass and bushes, maybe have to camp out a night. And then the wise men heard about it. And then a star appeared. We should probably follow that star. It's pointing down to the barn. So maybe we should follow it. Maybe. So the wise men went to Jesus. They gave them gifts. A stuffed animal, like a hippo one, that I have at home. Some diapers, and some wipes, and some milk, some shoes, some Jordans. Gold, Frank, and Latimer. And I don't know how I would survive in that barn. Too stinky, too crowded, and ugh. I think he probably pooped because the room was very smelly. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's gonna be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby I ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is gonna change the world. Uh. You're the best baby I've ever seen. That's my favorite line there. This morning, we're going to look at two additional characters. The first character that we're going to look at, it's one that in most Christmas pageants that we see, he's not really displayed on, on the stage very often. And that's because he doesn't really fit this cute, cuddly, warm, conflict-free version of, of the birth of Jesus that sometimes we, we put forward. And that, of course, is, is Herod. So we're going to talk about Herod, but then before we leave this morning, I want to end by looking at how the wise men 
approached and how they worshiped Jesus. I think that as we look at the wise men, they set a good example for us for how we are to properly worship and come before Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, and even if you don't, let's stand together. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, and we stand in honor of God's Word. Understand this is more important than anything that will come out of my mouth, because God's Word is living and active, and it's the Holy Word of God. So we're going to read verses um, 1 through 12 from Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So let's talk for just a moment about King Herod. King Herod's also referred to as Herod the Great. Now we know that Herod was an evil, vile, ruthless king that during his reign as king, that the the history is filled with murder, with adultery, with um, corruption, all sorts of terrible things while Herod was the king. Now Herod, just so you know what an evil person he was, he actually had his own wife's brother killed. If that's not enough, he then had his wife's mother killed. If that's not enough, then he had his own wife killed. Again, if that's not enough, then Herod had two of his own sons executed. And finally, if that's not enough, five days before Herod died, he actually had his third son executed. So we're talking about an evil, vile, calloused heart of of a man, not just of a king who is there. Now, for 40 years, he had been called by the Romans the king of the Jews, which is really kind of interesting because he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't born Jewish, so really because he wasn't born Jewish, he was holding this position of king in an illegitimate fashion because he did not rightfully have that throne. But he wanted to find a way to make it more appealing to be the king of the Jews, so he ends up marrying a Jewish woman. By doing this, he feels like now maybe they'll accept me. So again, for 40 years, he had been called king of the Jews by all of the Romans. But there was one title that Herod never held. 
There was one title that as powerful as he was, as king of the Jews, probably the most powerful person on the planet at that time, there was one title that was more important than any other title, and that was Messiah. Messiah, everyone had known from the beginning of time, was a prophecy that had been foretold that the Messiah literally meant the long-awaited God-anointed ruler. All the Jewish people knew that they were longing, they were waiting for the Messiah to be born. This would be someone they had not only been waiting for, this would be God's anointed ruler. The Messiah, he would be over all earthly rulers, including the king of the Jews here. He would establish the kingdom of God here on earth, and finally, his reign would never end. So Herod was clearly afraid. He was intimidated by this child who was born named Jesus, who they weren't claiming was just going to be another king, but he was claiming that he was going to be the Messiah. So it shouldn't surprise us that Herod is an insecure person especially that he's an insecure leader when we know that he is holding this position illegitimately. But then he's terrified that this baby who is claiming by others are claiming that he is the Messiah is claiming not only to come and steal his crown, but he's coming to steal his throne and he is born right in his own backyard. Now, we don't know exactly how the wise men received this information that this child who was born was the Messiah, but we can tell by Herod's reaction that they knew who they were going to see. That he, Herod, but the way that he's so, he's so upset, he's so angry that he, what he wants to do, and we're going to read about that in just a minute, that they can tell that the, the wise men know that they are looking for the final and God-anointed king who had just been born. Now, of course, this information does what to Herod? It infuriates him. He can't stand the fact that someone is going to take the attention off of himself. So he becomes uh, almost obsessed with this. He can't think of anything else. And so eventually he ends up doing the unthinkable. You read that in verse 16. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But I want us to be careful here because Herod isn't the only character who's mentioned as being present when this announcement is made, this understanding that, that the Messiah has been born. Herod's there, but there's also two other characters, and we see that in verse 4. Look, look in verse 4 with me again. It says, In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, meaning Herod, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's there, but who are the two other characters that are there? You can say it out loud. The what? The chief priests and the scribes. They're there. But how is their reaction, how are their reactions different from Herod's? Think about what's happening here. The Messiah has just been born. The chief priests and the scribes, it was their job to read the Old Testament. It was their job to know the the foretelling, the prophecies that were coming. And instead of them rushing and saying, oh my word, maybe it has been fulfilled, the prophecies being fulfilled in our midst, instead of them embracing that, what's their reaction to the birth of Jesus? Indifference. They don't do anything. 
It's almost as if it just passes right over. It infuriates Herod, and he becomes so angry that he wants to do whatever it takes, including mass murder, to get rid of Jesus. But the people who should have been longing for, the people who should have been expecting this to happen, the prophecies being fulfilled, they are indifferent. And friends, don't you see that today, people still have the same two reactions to Jesus Christ. For some, when they hear about Jesus or they hear about his followers, they're filled with hostility. They want to go after, they want to do whatever they can to destroy. And others, well, they're just indifferent. He's a good man, a good teacher, but the fact that the Messiah has been born, it it doesn't affect their life. Friends, that's why it should not surprise us when we see these two reactions, especially as you look in the Middle East and you see the hostility towards those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Of course they're going to be hostile. They're following in the same direction, the same vein as Herod did. And by the time you get to to verse 19, what happens to Herod? He's dead. It's all over. His life, just like that, it ends. And I can't help but think about how Herod missed it. How would his life have been different if he had simply laid aside his pride, if he had laid aside the fact that he didn't want anyone else to have the the power, the authority, the attention placed on him, how would his life and his entire family have been different? But instead, he completely missed it. And think with me for a second about the difference in how not only Herod responded to the news of Jesus, but not only Herod, but also Joseph. Look at the two men. You have Herod, who by all human standards is probably the most powerful person on the planet. Then you've got Joseph, who's just a normal human being, nothing special about him. But how do they respond differently to the news of Jesus being born? Well, you have Herod, who relied on what? He relied on his own power. He thought that because of his position, because of his own earthly power, that he could overcome the significance of the event that had just occurred. Surely within myself, I can, I, I can arise above it. Then you've got Joseph, this normal, regular human being, who once he heard from the Lord, instead of relying on his own power and his own strength, he relied on God's power and he steps out in faith. So much so that in Matthew chapter 2, we have three separate examples of how when, when Joseph hears from God, he immediately responds, not in, in human wisdom, not in intellect, not in what we think he would do, but he responds out of what God tells him to do. The first thing we've already read about, when God says, look, I want you to marry your fiance, even though she's pregnant and you know you're not the father, he responds in faith. The second thing we just read about there, we see that he's going to tell them, look, you need to flee where you are and flee Israel and go to Egypt because if you stay here, Herod is trying to murder your son. And then later at the end of chapter two, you see that he tells, Herod, he tells Joseph, I want you to come back because Herod's now dead. Now you can come back into the land. Each of these times, Joseph responds not in a way that we think, oh, that's natural, that's what he should do. He responds almost in an unnatural way. He responds immediately to what God tells him to do because he's not acting out in his own strength, but he's relying on what God has called him to do. Friends, isn't Joseph an incredible example for how we are to respond in faith as well? 
The problem is, it's not usually that we don't know what to do, right? Usually we know what we're supposed to do. We know from reading God's word. We know from being in fellowship with other believers. But the problem is that when we weigh the cost of what it's going to cost us to fully obey him, we end up choosing ourselves. We choose our own comfort. We choose our own desires over how costly it will be to truly follow God immediately and fully as to what he has called us to do. Another way that it's been said, you've heard it said this before, is that we are educated way above our level of obedience. It's not that we don't know, it's that we don't obey. And in the end, I pray that what I'm remembered for as a man, as a husband, as a dad, as a follower of God, I pray that I'm remembered more for my obedience to God than my knowledge of God. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we don't need to study God's word. We do. We need to. We can't, you can't obey unless you first know it. But sometimes I fear that we know so much of God's word that we don't place the emphasis on doing it. As James would say, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Now, there's one other character that I want to focus on before we wrap up this, this quick series, and that is how did the, the wise men respond um, to the birth of Jesus? When the wise men get there, what is their response? But there, there's a couple things that we don't know about the wise men. And last week, I feel like I did a pretty good job of, of messing up your Christmas nativity scenes and your, your Christmas tree. So I want to do a little bit more of that today. Um, Merry Christmas, right? Um, let, but let's just look at, remember, we're trying to see what does Scripture really say about the birth the, the birth of Jesus. The first thing we don't know about the wise men is, believe it or not, we don't know if they were three or not. I know we sing we three kings. Matt, thanks for not singing that today. There may have been three kings. There may have been a hundred kings. We don't know how many wise men there were. Why do we say three? Because there were what? Three gifts. That's why we say that there were three. We don't know how many were there. We also don't know their names, right? We don't know how they got there, their mode of transportation. We don't know what country they were from either. But what do we know about the wise men? Well, what we do know is that they were extremely intelligent. More than likely, they were high-ranking officials. They were probably astrologers or astronomers. Now, here's the, here's the thing that I love about the Christmas story. I love that the two groups of people that God makes an announcement to of the birth of Jesus were who? The shepherds who were the what? The lowest of the low and the wise men who were high-ranking, probably uh, very uh, official rulers there. Isn't that God? To the very high, to the very low, the message of the gospel is true for every single person. So how do these wise men respond when they enter into the presence of Jesus? Let me show you three things that they did. Write these down for you, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap up this morning. The first thing they did was they honored him by falling down before him. You see that in verse 11, the first part. Look what it says. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they what? They fell down and worshiped him. By falling down, in essence, what they are saying is they are recognizing that this child is far greater than myself. I'm recognizing I'm worshiping you by getting down low. Now, by the way, where does it say that the wise men met Jesus in the barn or the stable? By the way, or the, the house. I know I'm messing up your nativity scene again, all right? 
They didn't make it to the stable there. It was probably not even days or weeks. It was probably months after Jesus had been born that the wise men arrived at the house where they are. So if you, do, if you do it the right way, take your wise men, they're fine. Just put them way far away, all right? Put them like at the kitchen table. You've got this over here. The dining, that's fine. You can include them, but just know it's probably months before they got there. And then did you notice how um, the wise men's reaction, it's the exact opposite of Herod's, isn't it? Where Herod was infuriated, he wants to commit murder in order to, to protect his name, the wise men They humble themselves, they bow down, they get down low before him. And again, look how this relates to today. Today, people tend to have one of three reactions to Jesus, the same three reactions we just read about. Either they're like Herod, and they want to know nothing about God, nothing about his ways. In fact, they will be, uh, want to attack and destroy his ways. Or other people will be like the chief priests and scribes. They're just indifferent. Who cares? The birth of Jesus, great. It's not going to affect my life. Or then hopefully, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we will be like the chief priest, excuse me, that we'll be like the wise men, that we will bow down and worship him. First thing they did was they bowed down. The second thing they did was they experienced great joy in his presence. Look at verse 10 again. When they saw the star, they did what? rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's interesting how he describes it there, isn't it? He could have just said, hey, and they saw the star, they rejoiced. But look at the detail he goes into. Look at the descriptive words. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like four times. This is like the greatest joy they could have had. This is the joy that they have when they they come into the presence of Jesus. Friends, What we can learn from an example of the wise men here is that when we come to worship Jesus, when we bow down to him and worship, we come before him with exceedingly great joy. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we're going through, no matter how bad our day has been, our week has been, no matter what news we've just received, we come with joy. Why? Because we recognize who he is and we recognize what he has purchased for us, that he has freed us from sin that he has purchased us for our salvation, that we are no longer orphans, but he has adopted us into his family. And because of that, we worship and we worship with great joy. Tired of seeing Christians that are so angry. They look like they've never smiled a day in their life. We should be filled with great joy. We know what happens in the end, right? The worst thing that can happen to us is to die. And what does Paul say then happens to us? We immediately go and live with heaven. To die is gain. We should be filled with great joy because of the truth that was found in the manger. And the third thing that we can learn from the example of, of the wise men is they offered him sacrificial gifts. The, first part, the last part of verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When the wise men came into the presence of Jesus for that very first time, they didn't come empty-handed, did they? No, they brought gifts before him. That, what, did that, what does that mean? It means that they were worshiping him with a joyful heart that out of the overflow of their hearts, they wanted to give him something. Now understand this, let's make this real clear. Jesus didn't need those gifts. It's not like the baby in the manger, oh, now I can finally get to Egypt because I got these gifts. No, no, no. They, they could not give anything to Jesus that he needed. 
But instead, these gifts, they were brought to Jesus as another way of showing how much they honored him, how much they desired him. These gifts were were a, a visible sign that they desired the Messiah more than they desired any earthly treasure. The gifts were given out of an overflow of a grateful heart in worship. Friends, the same is true for us in worship today. When we come before our Lord and Savior in worship, we come joyfully. We bow down before him, understanding that he is greater than us, that there's nothing that we can do for him, but we bring gifts to him, demonstrating our devotion to him. How? By sacrificially giving to him. And as we give our offerings to him, what we're saying is, Jesus, we desire you more than any material possession that we own. It's an act of worship, just as the wise men demonstrated So let me try my best to to tie a bow and and wrap a bow around this short two-part series of what it was like in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. See, Jesus, he was born into this world, but he wasn't born into comfort and luxury. His entire life, it's almost as if death, violence, corruption, it seemed almost to follow him, didn't it? We see that what's so amazing about Christmas Is it the Son of God that he willingly entered into this incredible, violent, turbulent, corruptive-filled land? Think about that. He willingly entered into this mess of a world. And we know that Jesus, he ends up escaping the, the threats of Herod for this murder, doesn't he? But at the end of his life, He's murdered at the hands of violent men, not Herod, but other men. The story of Jesus, it begins with the horrible killing of children. And his earthly life ends with the violent murder of the Son of God. See, the murder of children in Matthew chapter 2, it depicts how much the world, how much the earth needed God's grace. And we see that grace was given to us when Jesus willingly went to the cross. So my prayer for each and every one of us this Christmas, we've got two days left. My prayer is that as we go home today and over the next two days that we look at our beautiful Christmas trees that are decorated, I pray that it reminds us of another tree. I pray that we're reminded not of a tree that's decorated with lights and beautiful ornaments, but we're reminded of a tree that was stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be like the shepherds and the wise men, that we would be filled with amazement and wonder of what this season holds, of the fact that God would be born of a virgin, that he would live a perfect life, and eventually he would die on the cross, and that when we understand what the season's really all about, that as Christians, that we would live our lives with a proper perspective. And what's that proper perspective? It's understanding that our life is not our own. 
We don't exist here just to do all of as good as we can to make, make our families as happy as possible. We exist for the glory of God. We exist to share and make known the message of Jesus Christ. We exist so that the name of Jesus would be lifted high and that we would remember that as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, let us not forget that Jesus was born to die. He was born to pay our debt so that we might inherit eternal life. And the only response to that is, as the hymn writer said, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are truly in awe and wonder that you would not only send your Son to be born but you would send them with the purpose of dying. Lord, I pray that that message never gets old to us. I pray that we never become so flippant about Christmas or Easter that we forget the incredible miracle that you would send your son and that he would willingly enter into our world so that we might have the opportunity if we accept the gift of salvation to be a son or a daughter of yours. Lord, I pray for each family here that in the midst of the busyness of these next few days, in the midst of all of the fun and the family and the food that we're going to experience, that we would not lose sight of the fact that we worship you. Let us not go get so excited about the party that we forget whose party it truly is. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity that we can be a son or a daughter of yours. And I pray that if there is anyone here today that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that today they would repent of their sins. They would turn from their sins and they would call out to you and trust that you will forgive them, that you will run to them and give them the forgiveness, the redemption that we all so desire. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.